You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want you to demand more from your money. So start by knowing what you own and what you owe. We'll help you take the next step at fidelity.com slash demand more now. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody. It's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. I am coming to you today with a very inspiring story, the story of a guy who went from truly broke to having a million dollars in just a little over five years. His name is Grant Sabatier. He is a proponent of the FIRE movement. If this is the first time hearing about FIRE for you, well, it stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. And back in 2010, when he was 24 years old, Grant had $2.26 in his checking account and a penny, one penny, in savings. A little over five years later, he is truly financially independent. He's out with his first book. It's called Financial Freedom, A Proven Path to All the Money You Will Ever Need. He's also the founder of MillennialMoney.com and the host of the Financial Freedom Podcast. Grant, welcome. So glad to be here. You are joining us from your book tour. So where are you? Yeah, I'm in San Diego. Just had uh, an 80-person event last night. Very nice. City number 18 out of 41. Well, you are a road warrior by the definition of road warrior, I think. Are you enjoying it or you just feel like you're going from place to place? Oh, I'm loving it. You know, I've gotten reader emails for a long time and it's just great to get out on the road and meet people and hear their stories in person. And there's just a lot of hope and a lot of life. And I'm, I'm loving every minute of it. That's great. All right, take me back. Take me back to 2010. You were 24 years old. You were living at home, as a lot of people do these days, post-college. You were living with your parents. You were unemployed. You had very little in your bank accounts. How did you get there? Yeah, so I graduated with a philosophy degree and. You know, I was one of those 22-year-old kids who didn't know what I wanted to do in life. Um, You know, people asked me what my why and what my purpose and what my mission was, but I had absolutely no clue. So I applied to just a whole bunch of jobs and ended up my first job out of college was, you know, when you call an airline and it says this call may be recorded for quality assurance. Mm -hmm. I was literally the guy on the other end for American Airlines listening to people complain to agents (laughs) all day long. And this was a 12 hour a day job and um, ended up getting laid off, thankfully, after six months because I wasn't able to answer enough calls and analyze enough calls as quickly as possible. So very grateful that that job was my first job. I bounced around three different jobs over the next couple of years, never found my right fit and ended up running out of money. So I had to move back home. Did you come out of school with debt, with student debt, with credit card debt? Did you have that sitting on your head as well? Yeah, I did. I was I was lucky that I got some scholarships, so I didn't have much student debt, but I did have about $20,000 in credit card debt, and that continued to grow during this period as well. 
You must have been completely demoralized. I mean, I, I've read enough about you to know that not only did you go to college, but you got good grades. You not only got one job, you got three jobs, and yet you still ended up back at your parents' home, if not on your parents' couch. Had they preserved your bedroom? Uh, the bedroom at that time was preserved. So I was sleeping in the same bed that I slept in as a seven-year-old kid. <laughs> How'd that feel? Oh, it was terrible. It was terrible. I felt bad because, you know, I'd worked so hard and done everything that I was supposed to do. And I'm an only child and my parents, my parents who came from very little money, uh, you know, invested a lot of resources in me. And so they were scared why I had to move back home. I was pretty ashamed and confused and wondered why having done everything I was supposed to do, how I got back there. At what point did you set your two big goals to save a million dollars and to retire early? Uh, so that was in August 2010. So I'd sent out over 200 resumes while living with my parents. They said that I could crash for three months and they weren't going to give me any money. And so there, I was in the pressure cooker. And so I sent out 200 resumes, not gotten any call back. And then I was obviously very stressed about money. And then I also realized that my parents, who were in their late 50s at the time, had just started saving for retirement. And they were stressed about money. And my friends were all stressed about money. And so it was at that point that you know I put on my philosophy degree hat. I was like, you know, what is money? Why is this so complicated? Why is it so hard for us to make? Why does it stress us out? And so it was, it was around that time that I set the goal just completely arbitrarily to, you know, how can I save a million dollars as quickly as possible? And then I started doing the simple math. And so I was making about $42,000 when I had gotten laid off and had to move back home and just did the simple math of if I save 5% of my $42,000 salary, how long is it going to take me? And I realized that I would probably never be able to save up that amount of money. So then I started digging into, you know, everything that I had been taught about money, like money is time, you know, save five to 10% of your income, budget, all these ideas that I had been taught, I started systematically, you know, analyzing and looking at and realized that a lot of what's shared, you know, in the popular media and what I had been taught about money just, just was completely wrong. And so I quickly realized, okay, I need to find a way to make as much money as quickly as possible. And then I started looking, going down that rabbit hole and realized that a lot of what's shared in the money world is just really scammy and just meant to take your money. And I was like, gosh, not only is this really complicated, but it's really scammy too. And so then I started getting pretty obsessed with, all right, I'm going to figure this money thing out. Let's break all this down because you've said that it's wrong. You said that it's scammy. I actually consider myself part of this popular money world. So let's sort of push back a little bit. Let's break it down. Let's figure out what you're talking about when it comes to retiring early versus retiring at all. And let's dig in. So what was so wrong about the advice that you think you were getting? So I'd always been told to save five to 10% of my income. Uh, that was something my parents had shared. That was something that when I'd signed up for my first 401k, I was auto-enrolled at 3%. And so I felt pretty good about the money that I was saving even when I got out of college. And 
no one had ever shared with me just the simple correlation between the amount of money that you're saving, the percentage of your income, and how quickly it will take you to retire. And so 5% is, of course, better than nothing. But, you know, when you're making forty dollars or $50,000 a year, it's going to help you retire probably in 40 to 45 years, which is the traditional narrative. And that was something that I just thought was what everyone did. And so I was very surprised that I'd never heard anyone or of any story of someone who had done it faster. You know, the only narrative was, you know, Mark Zuckerberg becomes a billionaire at 30. There was no, here's kind of the average person and here's how they saved up a lot of money relatively quickly by saving, say, 40 or 50 percent of their income. It's true that the FIRE movement has come into its own only in the past couple of years, right? We've started to hear about it, but the stories have been there. I mean, you've got your foreword to your book was written by Vicki Robin, who wrote Your Money or Your Life, and she was talking about this decades ago. I did a story on Super Savers on the Today Show, you know, a, a good half decade ago. I mean, there there have been stories. It's just that it's only recently coming into the popular dialogue. What I think is interesting, though, is that it's not that the advice was wrong for people who wanted to work for 40 years before retiring. It's that the advice was wrong for you. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, as a 20-year-old, I wasn't watching the Today Show. Uh, When I read Your Money or Your Life, Joe Dominguez actually saved up less than $100,000, and he was able to live on $9,000 a year which I was intrigued by, but seemed insanely unrealistic. So you're, you're absolutely right. 2010, when I started this journey, there was no one blogging about financial independence. It wasn't until two and a half years in that I found someone else who was pursuing this as well. And so it was very much kind of going out into the forest. Um, it felt that way. And even when I searched for early retirement back then, uh, everything that was written about it was, you know, people who are retiring in their 50s. There was nothing about, you know, 30s or even 40s. And so I was looking for it. And I was very happy once mid-2012, I discovered some other people who were trying to do it as well. Um, so not that it wasn't around and out there, but I wasn't hearing it. You know, I was exposed to, at that time, you know, the Dave Ramseys and the Susie Ormans and, you know, even finding David Bach, I was super intrigued by the automatic millionaire, but it still was, hey, this is going to happen in, you know, 25, 30 plus years. And so, I, I, like I said, I set the, the, the seemingly arbitrary goal of how can I save a million dollars? Because a million dollars, I figured, you know, that could last me a long time once I realized that I could cut back my expenses pretty significantly. So let's fast forward. You, by 2015, had saved a million dollars through a combination of supercharged saving, and and we're going to talk about how you did that, and through uh, investing, entrepreneurship, talking about money to other people and making money from doing that 
In your book, Grant, you've got a seven-step plan to get from financially strapped to financially free. I want to go through every single one of those steps, but before we do that, let me just remind everybody that Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. What if you could demand more from your money? What if you could make your savings work as hard as you do? And what if like Grant, that helped you reach your financial goals faster. It all starts with exactly what we've been talking about, a financial checkup, an understanding of what you own and what you owe. From there, Fidelity will work with you to evaluate your investment options and different ways to grow your savings. And you can get started today at fidelity.com slash demand more now. We are back with Grant Sabatier, author of Financial Freedom. So what is the first step of your seven-step plan? Yeah, I mean, the first step is really to get clarity with where you're at currently. And that there's two sides to that coin. There's obviously getting clarity around your money. What's your net worth? What do you owe? What assets do you have? But I actually think more importantly, it's getting clarity on where you're at in your life and figuring out and thinking about why you actually want more money. And so that's one of the things as well is the finance industry asks us, how much money do we need for the rest of our lives? When the first question should be, what kind of life do you want to live? And then how much money does it take to live that life? Because what type of life you want to live, ultimately you're in control of that. And so something as simple as the more expensive your lifestyle, the more money you're going to need and realizing that everything is comes down to a trade-off. And so getting clarity is really the first step on, okay, why do you actually want more money? And I go through this with a lot of people. And once they go through it, they realize, you know, maybe I don't need that much more money because what I'm really after is time when I could just simply switch to a little bit less stressful job or a job where I don't have to travel as much or a job where I can work remotely, and I've actually gotten back more time, which time is so much more valuable than money because you can't create more of it. And so getting clarity is really the first step. And and essentially, you're saying goals first, number second, which is exactly what we say on this show all the time. You got to figure out what you want, and then you figure out how much it costs and how much you need to work or not work to go after it, how much you need to invest to go after it. In step two, you calculate the number that you're starting from, your current net worth. How do you define that? Yeah, so net worth is simply assets, anything that you have that's a value that you could sell. Uh, minus your liability. So any debt that you have, uh, credit card debt, student loan debt, and then the results, your assets minus your liabilities is your net worth. And your net worth is the most important number in personal finance, in my opinion, because it's really your scorecard. And it tells you um, at, you know, how well you're doing. It doesn't matter how much money you're making. It matters, is your net worth ultimately growing? Is it increasing? When I first did this, my net worth was negative 22,000. And a lot of people, when they're first starting out, their net worth is going to be negative. But, you know, it can become very much like a game. And that's why in the book, I recommend spending about five days, five minutes a day with your money, counter to the advice that you shouldn't look at your money every day. You actually, I believe, should because the more time you spend with your money, I just wake up in the morning when I'm having my coffee, 
I open up Mint or Personal Capital, any personal finance tracking app can do, and I take stock of where I'm at. And because I'm doing that every day, over a period of a week, you know, I'll see my net worth grow. And then that ended up, you know, giving me a lot of motivation to continue. And I got, I started getting excited to wake up and check my net worth as opposed to being afraid of money or scared of money. And so the net worth is kind of your scorecard is where you're starting from. It's something uh, that you want to be monitoring consistently. And it's, it's at the end of the day, we all know the tactics of how to make this happen. Uh, but the key thing is getting the motivation and keeping the motivation and tracking your net worth is the best way that I found to do that. One of the reasons people say don't check your money every day is because one of the biggest mistakes you can make is when the market tumbles, panicking and bailing on your investments rather than allowing them to stay in for the long term, to do their work, to come back, essentially. How do you deal with that? I mean, knowing that you've been doing this during a very extended bull market. Yeah, I think it's it's like anything in life that you want to get comfortable doing. Um, say it's public speaking. Say you're really afraid to get up in front of your you know coworkers and give a presentation. The only way that you're going to get better at doing that and be less afraid is to spend more time doing it. And so it's the same thing with money. We're told to you know say check our money once a month or do our budget once a month. When in reality. The paradox is that you actually should be spending time with your money every day because it makes you less emotional. You're going to be less afraid when the market drops if you know you've been spending more time with your money. You're just you're more comfortable with it. And so, you know, checking your emotions at the door very easy to say, much harder to do in practice. Um, you know, I see even very experienced investors freaking out when the market drops. And so figuring out and getting comfortable with the fact that there's going to be ups and downs and changes. Um, and at the end of the day, going back to the original point that you know you mentioned having goals are really important, it's also important to realize what you already have. And that's what I see so many people, that, you know, they're making good money, they're doing a decent job saving, but they're still stressed out about money. And it's like, hey, money only matters if it helps you live a life that you love. And so um, if the market drops and you're really stressed and you can't sleep at night, you know, just take stock of what, what you already do have in your life and, and, and keep the perspective that money money's only useful if it's helping you, you know, live that life that you that you want. I can absolutely agree with that. As we fast forward, your third step is really getting a grip on your saving and you talk about different ways to supercharge your saving, which you did. You saved 25%, then 40%, then 80% some months. We've got a little bit of time left. What is your favorite way to get your savings rate to take a significant jump? Yeah, so this is one of the qualms I have. I've never had a budget. I recommend most people don't have budgets. Obviously, they work for some people, but they tend to be the biggest barrier when it comes to managing money. And so for me, I've tried to keep it really simple where the average American spends 70% of their income on three things, housing, transportation, and food. And you're going to be able to save the most amount of money or you spend the most amount of money. And so my favorite savings tip Without a doubt, I just moved to New York City 
eight months ago from Chicago, obviously very expensive city. Uh, and so I knew not even having a budget that the number one thing I had to do was keep my housing expense as reasonable as possible. And so if you're living in a two or three bedroom apartment or two bedroom apartment, you know, one of these luxury apartments that a lot of younger people live in, um, you know, with the cinema and the pool table and all these things, um, you're paying a massive premium in order to live there. And if you just get a roommate for a while or move to a different neighborhood, one of the biggest impacts on my life simply came from moving from a $1,500 apartment in Chicago to an $800 a month apartment in Chicago and being able to save that extra $700. And that effectively, just that one decision, increased my savings rate almost 15% more. And so, well, and what I like so much about that advice, by the way, is that it's not just for millennials. When we talk to people who are 40 years old, 45, 50, and they're thinking, I haven't saved enough yet for retirement, one of the ways that you can do it is by downshifting earlier than you expected, you know, giving up the big house and moving into something a little bit smaller, a little bit sooner. That not budgeting, but focusing on those big buckets of expenditures is is your fourth step. Step five and step six are all about work and working the other side of the equation, meaning you are trying not just to earn money through your day job, but earn money through side hustles and things like that. But I want to jump to the last step on your trajectory, which is investing. And you say you got to do it as early as possible and as often as possible. How do you help people who have fear when it comes to investing their money? So a vast majority of people in this country, they think that time is money and money is time. But time is so much more valuable than money, as I mentioned, because you can't get it back. And so if you spend your life always working for someone else and you're not investing as much as you can, then you're always going to be trading your time for money. And one of the things Warren Buffett, great example, one of the best investors of all time, he makes about $1.5 million per hour on his investments without trading any of his time. Last year, I made $45 per hour on my investments, very, very, a lot less than Warren Buffett, of course, but I didn't have to work at all for that money. It was my money growing. How much money do you have invested when you were making $45 an hour on it? Give us a reality check here. What do we have to get to to make $45 an hour from our investments? Yeah, a little over $1.7 million invested. And so that, okay. that's what my I made last year on my investments without having to work at all. But even if you have a lot less than that, even if you're making you know $10 a day on your investments, it's still money that you didn't have to work for. And so the idea is I figured out that I could actually accelerate the rate of compounding. So we all know the compounding curve, but if you can make a make it make some trade-offs for just a few years in your life, and this is something, nothing has to last forever. You know, you don't have to, you know, have a roommate forever. You don't have to house hack forever. This is something where if you get your act together for like three to 10 years, it can literally set you up for life. And so I figured if I could save a million dollars by the age of 30, I actually would need less money to retire at 30 than I would at 65. Wait, explain that math. Yeah, because I'd have the extra 35 years of compounding. 
And so this is one of those areas where obviously there's there's big generalizations in that type of a claim. There's certain ways that I've insulated my money in order to make that possible. For example, um, you know, you save up, you, there's a few ways to become financially independent. You can save up a big pile of money and live off the interest, or you can create income producing assets. You know, you can just with a couple properties today, rental properties, you can get enough rent to cover your living expenses. I see people in their 20s doing this now, people who are 27 who are retiring with just a couple properties, or you can do a mixture of the both. And so what I've done is I've done both where I've saved up money, but I'm hedging by building consistent uh, you know, income streams in order to cover my living expenses. And then the actual, you know, we've all heard about sequence of returns risk, which is the stock market returns over the five to 10 years once you retire, how that impacts if the stock market's way down, then your money's not going to grow as fast. But in a vast majority of scenarios, your money, if you're able to preserve the principle of your investment, say at the age of 30, the likelihood that your money is going to at least triple or quadruple over the next 30 year period is extremely high. And so as long as you can just live off the interest or just preserve your principal, you need significantly less money to retire at the age of 30 than you do at 65. And you don't have to work those additional 35 years, but it does require you, know, you saving 40 to 50% of your income, and it, and it accelerates the rate of compounding. And that's why it's important to save early, often, and as much as you can, because a dollar saved today is significantly more valuable than a dollar even saved in 10 years. I'm picturing our listeners. We know our listeners are a combination of millennials and Gen Xers and also baby boomers. And so I am picturing those who are not 30 anymore and not 40 anymore and even like me, not 50 anymore and thinking, all right, what's your answer for the rest of us? Yeah, the answer for the rest of, of, of everyone is the same. It's like the next five years um, from an investing standpoint, whether you're 30 or 55 or 60, the next five years are the most important in your life. And so that's why you mentioned the point that, you know, you can you can downsize, you can get a roommate, you can get rid of that car note that you have, you can cook more at home, you know, everything in life. And the book, I talk about this. I don't tell you what to buy or what not to buy. Just realize that whenever you're spending money instead of saving it, you're actually trading freedom for it. And so I figured out that every hundred dollars. Uh, when I was in my mid-20s, every $100 that I was investing, I was buying a week of freedom in the future. And that's something that in the book I show you how to do. I built a calculator so you can do it with your own numbers. You can actually plug in what you have and uh, it'll tell you how much freedom you're trading for it. So it's all a trade-off. So if you're just hearing this for the first time and you're 55 years old and you have zero money saved, it's not too late at all. You just have to make the trade-offs and decide how extreme you're willing to make those trade-offs to be. If you're really scared about not having enough money for retirement, you probably got to go pretty hardcore uh, for at least the next five years. Maybe it means taking fewer vacations. Maybe it means um, spending more time trying to make more money on the side. Definitely advocating for a raise. 
um, you know, all of those things, the next five years, no matter when you're starting, are, are the most important. And where can we find those tools, Grant? Uh, financialfreedombook.com slash tools. Excellent. Thank you so much for calling in and joining us on your book tour. Hey, thanks, Jean. You're a huge inspiration. I followed your work for a long time, and it's just a real honor to be on the show. And I hope you have a good day. Thanks. You too. And we'll be right back with Kelly and your mailbag. Kelly is joining me in the studio. Am I sitting up taller? You are. I am because my back is taped so that my posture will be better. No, I'm serious. I feel like I, I've i been dealing, as you mm-hmm. know, yes. with this frozen shoulder. Oh, which sounds so horrible. Oh, it's awful. It it's just horrible. awful. It's terrible. But I am getting it worked on and getting it fixed. And today, um, the therapist taped this X on my back mm-hmm. to make my posture better. It looks good. Well, I have to learn how to sit up straight, evidently. I mean, the the ballet lessons from when I was 13 did not take. Oh, same. Or my piano lessons. You have great posture. I do, but not today because yesterday, for the first time in over seven years, I played a full day of volleyball in a tournament. Oh, my gosh. Congratulations. How'd you you do? We did well. We did well. We came in third for not ever playing with each other on a regular basis or at all in some cases. And it was a blast, but I hurt everywhere. Oh, I'm sorry. I hurt everywhere. And I think it's more of a function of me not playing this much in a long time, even not playing in probably about a year now. But, man, it's it's a lot different doing it in your later 20s than it was in your, your later teens. <laughs> so totally worth it, though. Worth the pain. But unlike you, I'm hunched over today because it's more comfortable. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I totally get it. I want to go back to the interview because yes. there was a lot to unpack there. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think, and I, I called them out on this, I want our listeners to understand that, especially when it comes to those savings rates, mm-hmm. 5% these days, if you're expecting to have enough to retire on the income that you are used to, is not enough. 10% is not enough. We say 15% for a reason. But this idea of all the personal finance advice you've ever gotten being wrong, it's not wrong. It's wrong for people who want to retire at age 30. If you you have a goal of getting out of your working life really early, then of course you have to supercharge your saving. Yep. And no, I'm so happy you went back to that moment and you called about in it and reminding him it was wrong for you. It's not necessarily wrong for everyone. And the percentages he quoted were lower than the 15 percent I've always heard you say. But I I think we also say pretty often on this show, it's at least 15 percent. Yeah. And I think we've talked about a lot that when you can save more, if you can save more, do it, especially the years that you can, because there might be years that you can't. Absolutely. So it's also the flexibility with your life and your life changes and stages that come with, I think, you know, this idea of holding on to a rate, a savings rate. Part of the reason that we know people are listening to this show is because we all want to create this life that we want. Our ideal life may line up with the ideals of people who are in the FIRE movement. We've done a number of shows on FIRE in the past. I loved our show with Jamila Souffrant. But we also have to acknowledge that 
everybody has different goals. And our job, at least what I feel like our job is, is to help all of our listeners attain their goals. Yes. It's not for me to tell you what you should want from your life. Right. It's not for me to assume that you want exactly what I want. Mm-hmm. you got to figure out what you want, and then hopefully we bring you along and help you have the tools to get it. Yes, and I will say I did enjoy his anti-budget approach to this, too, because it doesn't feel so restrictive, and it's in line with just that, figuring out what you want. So mm-hmm. a lot of the generalizations we make about easy cuts to your budget to save money, the coffees, the going out, the trips with friends. He argues in his book, keep those if you love those, but you have to know your number, know your goal, know your goal and then know your number, and then make sure you're putting your money to work for you in a way that's going to help you achieve your goal with your money that's left over. Do what you want with it. Well, said another way, Mm -hmm. you can't have everything. Right. And so you have to choose Mm -hmm. which things are meaningful to you. And the problem that I have with, it's not the coffee. It's it's not necessarily the eating out. It's not necessarily the housing. Mm-hmm. It's the mindlessness of it all. It's, it's spending in a way that you're not thinking about what you want. Mm-hmm. If you're thinking about what you want and what you want is Starbucks, by all means, Spend your money there. Yep. But if you're just drinking it and you're not even enjoying it anymore, then I would argue you need to reassess. Right. It's become mindless. What do we have as far as questions from our mailbag? So I pulled two today, but the first one is multifaceted and a really good one. And she gave me some background. She gave us some background. And she would like to remain anonymous, which is fine. She writes, I am debating mainly between two schools for public health school. It is down to University of Minnesota and Columbia University in New York. I'm 29 years old. I went to a private undergrad without parental support as well and took out roughly 60000 in student loans that I have down to about 28000 after about six years of paying on them. I have no other debt, and I have saved about $15,000 plus $12,000 in a pension plan I can take when I leave the country I'm living in since I'm coming back to the States. Ah, she's international. I will need to use some of that for the cost of moving back. Total cost of Minnesota is about 73000 and the total cost of Columbia is about 99000 It seems that assistantships at Minnesota Public Health School are very hard to come by, and Columbia doesn't do tuition remission for assistantships. This is the first time I'm hearing of assistantships. It's basically when they pay you for being in graduate school. So it's a stipend. It's it's like, I know this a little bit because my father was a college professor Mm -hmm. and there there would be teaching assistants and the teaching assistants would sometimes get a stipend. And it's not uncommon, but evidently Minnesota pays for them, although sparingly, and Columbia does not. Got it. Okay. Thank you. And she writes, other than what I have saved, I would probably need to be working during school and paying the rest with loans. On the school website, they say average starting salary of graduates for both schools is 77000 So in my projections, I've been putting 65000 starting salary. I would really like to go to Columbia because I have the curriculum, location, and networking opportunities. Minnesota is also an awesome school, though. My questions. Number one, is it feasible for my financial future if I go to the more expensive school? Number two, what is the best way to negotiate for potentially more financial support from the school? And three, any other ideas on how to make this work? I'm thinking a side hustle for the first few years of the university to pay extra on my student loans. Any other ideas would be appreciated. 
Okay, so as we look into the many questions within this question, mm -hmm. I do want to throw one other factor out there. Columbia University is in New York City, and <laughs> Minnesota is not. And the cost of living in New York City is a lot more expensive yep. than the cost of living in Minnesota. And so I just want to be sure, because you didn't give us the full background on your numbers, that you've taken that into consideration. That said, the difference in the two costs is not that much. Mm -mm. It really isn't. And so if you've already taken that into consideration and you're really negotiating for yourself a $13,000 difference, I would probably say try to hustle a little more with your side hustle, with the jobs that you're going to have, and, and go where you want to go. That said, in terms of negotiating with the financial aid offices of the schools, there is financial aid, as you know, for graduate school, much as there is for undergraduate. You not only want to fill out the forms, you want to have an in-depth discussion with the financial aid offices at both schools to figure out what is available, what is on the table. You want to look for outside scholarships and grants. There is a lot available in terms of scholarships and grants in terms of a variety of programs, and some of them seem incredibly random, but dig in. Do your homework on those. Start applying for every single one that you can find, even $1,000, $1,500, $2,000. If you can layer on a lot of different scholarships and grants like that, you can dramatically reduce the cost. And then I would say, yes, just start looking for work. Start figuring out how much time you'll be spending in school, how much time you're going to need to spend studying, and what sort of time you'll have available to do the outside sort of work that will pay a significant amount of money so that you can get back on your feet again. One of the things that I thought was most heartening about your original paragraph was the large amount of your student debt that you've already paid back. And I think if you've done it once, you can absolutely do it again. And I, I hope you'll let us know what you decide and where you go. I know. Good luck, Anonymous. Yeah. I was thinking cost of living, too. And I was also thinking looking at the demand of the job she wants in both places. But I also don't know if she plans on living in Minnesota or New York after she's done with school. But she did mention New York was a front runner because of the networking and the location itself. But I think, you know, as we were discussing with Grant, too, getting the degree doesn't always mean getting the job immediately right after. So putting your place in which the likelihood for employment will help you pay back those loans and live the life that you want to. Absolutely. Good luck. Let us know. And we'll do one more from Mishka. How do I tackle my credit card debt? It's so overwhelming. Where do I start? And something I can stick to that's not complicated. It sounds like you've got a lot of credit yeah. card debt. I mean, I wish I knew exactly how much and at what interest rates. My preferred method of getting out of credit card debt is the avalanche rather than the snowball. And that's because it is the fastest and cheapest way out of credit card debt. And the way it works is you line up all your credit cards, you figure out which has the highest interest rate, 
and you put all your extra money toward paying off that debt while making minimum payments on the rest. When that one's gone, you retire that card. You just put it in a drawer. You stop using it. And you do the rest with your other cards until the debt is gone. Now, it's also a good idea, if your credit score is decent, to give your credit card companies a call, see if you can negotiate your interest rates down a little bit or transfer your balance to a lower interest rate card. There are still good 0% balance transfer offers available. You can find those by going to bankrate.com or cardhub.com or lowcard.com. There are a lot of different sites where you can find those lower interest rate cards. But the last thing I would say is that because you use the word overwhelming, you may need some help. And if you need help, if you need a plan. If you need somebody to put you on a plan, what you want to look at is a debt management plan through a member of the National Foundation for Credit Counseling. These are certified credit counselors who can negotiate your interest rates down to 6%. They'll put them all together in one lump sum. You'll pay them. They'll pay off your debt usually takes about four years to get through this program, but once you come out the other side, you will have cleaned all of this up. So I would take a look at those if you feel like you can't do it yourself. Good luck. Thank you, Jean. Yeah, good luck. And um, thanks, everybody, for writing. If you want to reach us, you can find us at mailbag at hermoney.com. I got that right. You did. I did. <laughs> and uh, on Thrive Today, since we were discussing how to increase our incomes with Grant, we thought it would be a good idea to review some best practices for asking for a raise, which is rarely easy. But the conversation may be more likely to go your way if you know your boss's management type and can understand what motivates them as a person into action. In general, bosses fall into four personality categories, the dominant, the influencer, the steady, and the conscientious. And this is according to executive coach Liz Bentley, who you may have heard on the Her Money program. And if you didn't, you should check out her episode. Approaching your boss in a manner that jibes with their personality can make all the difference in your being heard and, more importantly, you're getting what you want. For example, if you're going into a conversation with a dominant boss, you should try to appeal to their logical instincts and to the fact that they generally like their own ideas best. When you're talking to an influencer boss, you want to tell them your story. You want to describe how you got where you are, where you want to go, and why you deserve this raise, being very conscious to point out everything that you've done on behalf of the company. Steady bosses do not like people who are showing off. They don't want you to be too focused on you. So make sure you are focused more on the company. And finally, if you've got a conscientious boss, make sure you've done your homework and that you are ready to lay out a case for precisely why you deserve this raise with lots of examples and lots of detail. And if you're looking for more information, you can find it on our website at hermoney.com. 
www.hermoneyfamily.com. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Grant Sabatier for the very interesting and thought-provoking conversation. If you like what you hear, we hope that you will subscribe to our show. At Apple Podcasts, we also hope you'll leave us a review. We love hearing what you think, and we like being able to show other people what you think, too. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we'll be back with another great guest, and we'll talk soon.